welcome to the IMA Public Policy Alumni Special Interest Group uh, webinar series. The Alumni Special Interest Groups at IMA are platforms that bring together alumni, faculty, and students, and uh, leverage the collective intellectual resources engaged in specific areas to bear on uh, some of the most challenging issues of our times, and enable these people to uh, collaborate with each other much more intimately and to engage with industry and practitioners in a much more multifaceted manner. Uh, the IMA Public Policy ASIG in particular is a group of alumni and faculty of the Institute uh, with expertise and interest in the fields of public policy and development. It fosters collaboration among the IMA community and the wider world of public policy practitioners to contribute to India's inclusive development agenda. Uh, the webinar series that we are running, uh, which today's session is a part of, uh, aims to bring the thoughts, views, and expertise of uh, experts to the IMA community. Uh, in, uh, in furtherance of uh, you know, several sessions that we have had earlier, uh, one of the important things that we want to address today is one of the important enablers of growth uh, that has been particularly challenging for India uh, and with respect to you know, the power sector. Uh, in each stage of its process. You know, it is, as you can imagine, a complex landscape comprising you know, challenges in generation, transmission, and distribution, uh, as also you know, traditional sources of energy versus renewable energy. Uh, today's topic of uh, current challenges in the Indian power sector deals with that. To share his views on this important topic, I'm very happy to welcome Shri Arun Goyal, 1985 batch IS officer, former secretary to the government of India, and currently member of the Central Electricity Regulatory Commission. He superannuated in August 2019 from the Cabinet Secretariat as Secretary Coordination. He has more than 34 years of wide-ranging experience with Government of India, state governments, union territory administrations, particularly in areas of power, finance, commerce, and industry. He has extensive experience in all spheres of power. Welcome, sir. In conversation with Sri Goel, we have Professor Ajay Pandey, faculty in the finance and accounting area at the Indian Institute of Management, Ahmedabad. Uh, to all those who have uh, joined in, please send in your questions in the Q&A section. Um, now I hand over the platform to Professor Pandey to take over the proceedings. Over to you, Professor Pandey. Uh, well, good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon to all those who have joined in in this webinar. And it's uh, indeed my pleasure to uh, welcome uh, Shigoel, who happens to be alumni, as well as, of course, a distinguished uh, civil servant. Today, of course, we are here to um, get his insights from his extensive involvement in the power sector uh, earlier as sort of in uh, uh, various capacities when he was uh, civil servant. And now as, of course, member of CRC, where he's grappling with the issues uh, directly as a regulator uh, related to the power sector. Uh, it so happened that the timing of this webinar turned out to be sort of not necessarily very good um, because at this point in time, uh, the India currently is uh, facing, at least some of the states are facing rolling uh, load shedding and uh, the demand has shot through the roof because of heat wave, whereas there has been a bit of shortage of uh, uh, supply also on account of coal um, uh, let's say, coal supply to the power plants. So anyway, um, this is, of course, very short-run problem. Hopefully, this will get over soon. But uh, the sector, as those of the those who are participating in this webinar may be aware that 
The sector has long-standing um, structural issues. Um, some of them, I think we have been able to successfully overcome. There are going forward lots of issues which are still there, and we would like to get the insights uh, of uh, somebody like Mr. Goyal, who has been intimately involved in the sector in the past and also is currently vested with the responsibility of uh, ensuring that the sector moving forward goes in the right direction. With that, I would uh, request Sri Goyal to sort of take over and uh, take us through how he looks at the challenges Indian uh, power sector is facing. Um, at this point of time, of course, he, he may also like to talk about what all we have been able to achieve in the last couple of decades. With that, over to you, Sri Goyal. Professor Pandey, uh, and thank you, Anurag, for that generous introduction. Uh, uh, so like Professor Pandey said, that uh, the topic for today is Indian power sector, current challenges, and way forward. Uh, so quickly, after a few slides on the backdrop, I divided my presentation into three major power sector segments of uh, generation, transmission, and distribution. Uh, just by way of uh, background, uh, the per capita consumption in India is in the year 2020 was really around 1000 megawatt, whereas the world average was 3300 uh, kilowatt hour that's the per capita consumption. So, I mean, India's per capita consumption is roughly one third of the world average. So we are not here even comparing uh, with the developed countries, even the world average, our consumption is roughly one third. And also, if we see uh, the per capita consumption, uh, which varies intrastate variations, they are also very, very huge. I mean, if we look at a state like Bihar, I mean, the per capita consumption is roughly one third of what is the average of India per capita consumption. So this only shows that electricity being the prime mover of economic activity, the electricity consumption is likely to increase further manifold in the years to come as uh, economic activities take place, India's GDP grows, and the, the, the power consumption is definitely going to increase. Now, if we look at uh, this power sector scenario uh, globally versus what is there in India, uh, so as far as the generation is concerned, so roughly, I mean, we produce around 5.3% of the global generation. So what's interesting is the fuel mix. So if you look at the fuel mix, so we are fast catching up as far as the renewable share is concerned. Like at the global level, the share of the renewable is around 31%. This share includes the hydropower, so which currently in India is around 20-21%. But what is, I mean, still very glaring is uh, that uh, the coal share in India's power consumption, or at least particularly in the units that we consume, is roughly 72%. Uh, so if we compare with the world average, so coal consumption is roughly 33%. But of course, I mean, if we add gas to it, so it's around 50, 56%. So, so it is, this is the main, you know, pain point that uh, we still have a uh, consumption through coal, uh, which is a sort of a dirty fuel. So if we look at the nuclear power, uh, so India's share is 3% uh, as compared to the global share of the 10%. So obviously, there is a scope for increasing share of the nuclear power in India's power mix. So, I mean, India's situation in the power sector in the early 90s was pretty bad. I also happened to be working in 
daily at that time. So I have actually had three, four tenors in daily's power sector. So the whole system was actually paralyzed and almost unsustainable. Uh, the sector was not generating any internal resources to invest in global I mean, distribution networks. Particularly the state registry boards, they were highly overstaffed. I mean, just I mentioned over here, uh, so the number of employees per million units of energy sold was around five at that time in India as compared to 0.2. So roughly, I mean, uh, it was around 25 times as compared to the developed countries, the type of the manpower that was involved. The capacities which were there, they were highly underutilized. Uh, the response time was very, very poor and there was rampant theft and filtrage of power. Now, in this background, the reforms were undertaken in the year 1990 for the first time, Electricity Supply Act was amended to allow private sector participation uh, in generation. So this is where we had Enron coming into India. Of course, this was not very, very viable kind of a thing because a lot of concessions were given to attract the private sector investment in generation. They were guaranteed 16% return on equity with full five-year tax holiday. The debt equity ratio norms were relaxed to four is to one. And then also sovereign guarantees were provided and escrow benefits were provided in case SCBs were defaulted. I mean, this all led to very, very high tariffs, which at that stage was not, were not sustainable, particularly for the reason uh, that uh, never have our distribution companies been uh, financially in a good position to honor the uh, power purchase costs. Uh, so the issue of, I mean, supplying power to agriculture at a cheaper rate has always been an issue. So even if we see over here, even in the year 1996, there was a chief minister's conference where, I mean, it was resolved that there should be a minimum agriculture tariff of 50 pesa. But of course, it always, always remained on the paper, nothing much was done. Then in 1998, transmission sector was open for private investment. And then in 1998, Electricity Regulatory Commission Act came into force. Uh, so major path-breaking reforms took place in India with the coming up of Electricity Act in the year 2003. Uh, the, here, the generation was fully delicensed. Uh, then the, there was also provision of determination of tariff by the bidding process. That is the provision under Section 63 of the Electricity Act. Uh, then. The SCBs were asked to mandatorily unbundle. That is, there had to be separate generation, transmission, and distribution entities so that there could be clarity that uh, where actually the losses are incurring or which segment is not operating efficiently. So there was also mandatory establishment of state electricity regulatory commissions. Uh, the freedom was given uh, for having captive and group captive generation. Uh, also provisions were there for open access in transmission and trading was recognized as an independent activity. Now, coming to generation. So if we look at this, uh, I mean, actually uh, the installed capacity wise state sector, I mean, not the central sector, state sector, it has a fairly good installed capacity, but I mean, roughly say more than 50%, nearly 50%, whereas their share in supply of power supply in terms of units is only 31%. It shows that the power generation units in the state sector are not operating efficiently because their share vis-a-vis -vis 
the installed capacity is much lesser. So on the other hand, if we look at the central sector, I mean, their share is only 26%, but they are contributing approximately 40% uh, of the share of the generation. Now, this is a little important slide. So this I have updated it up to March 2022. So the total installed capacity is nearly 400 gigawatt. And out of this thermal is 236 gigawatt and renewable is 109 gigawatt and hydro 47 and nuclear seven. Now, I mean, if we look at this next uh, pie chart, uh, now here you see that the thermal share is roughly 76%. I mean, out of say 400, the thermal installed capacity is only 236, but in terms of the units, they contribute around 76%. The main reason is that we have an RE, but RE, re renewable energy, by nature, is intermittent in nature because, I mean, uh, you get solar power only when the sun is out. So that's up to only around eight to nine hours in the day. For the rest of the time, you have to bank upon thermal, hydro, or other sources of generation. So the one of the takeaway over here is that even if the RE capacity was to increase manifold, we would still require capacities in thermal, nuclear, and hydro to take care of our base load. And even in the today's circumstances, when we are not able to meet the peak load, uh, much of it is also coming that we may have, uh, I mean, renewable power, but for particular instances, we don't have sufficient base load. Of course, like I think during the question hour, I mean, this issue can be debated and discussed a little more. Uh, now, again, I mean, if we look at all India PLF, which had been constantly been falling from the year 2011, I mean, it came down up in 2020-21 up to 53%. Of course, I mean, 56-53 in the last two years, mainly was COVID was a I mean, major contributor, but again, it has risen. But it is still much lower than what we were initially having around 70%. I mean, that shows the low PLF shows that our power plants are not working efficiently, efficiently, or to the sense that I mean their capacity is not being utilized fully. Uh, there has been rise in the energy requirements over the years, roughly at the CAGR rate of four percent. Uh, so there's a little bit of flat curve over here during 2020-21, but of course, I mean last year 2021-22, due to rebound, rebound of the economic activity there has been increase again in the all energy uh, energy requirement. Uh, now, as regards the generation, I mean, demand again in the gigawatt terms, I mean, uh, last year, 21, 22, we met the peak demand of two, uh, 203 gigawatt. And there was a the news that on Friday, we met the peak demand of 207 gigawatt. Now, if we see over here, so this just shows the comparison uh, that uh, till the last year, I mean, we have been constantly been improving. I mean, the peak shortages, which were in the range of say around 12% in the year 2001-2, they were almost insignificant in the year 2020-21, around 1.4%. And I mean, 2021-22 also around 1.2%. Of course, now starting April this year, so we are facing major challenges and uh, uh, so only the, we'll see later because the peak summer is yet to come how the whole system behaves. Uh, now I'd like to spend a little bit of time over here. Now 
see i mean in, uh, if we are to looking at the generation what are the major challenges in the generation one is a decreasing uh, plant load factor i showed that i mean it's in the range of 52 53% of course last year it has shown a slight growth uh, so in case the investment that have been made in the generation they are to be recouped easily and uh, the power plants have to get good returns so there is a need to increase the plant load factor uh, availability of the coal has been in the news and has been an area of concern there are two three factors attached to it of course whatever infrastructure bottlenecks are there uh, that, that is one part of the domestic coal but there has been sharp increase in the imported coal prices in fact the increase in the imported coal price is as high as six times i mean if you compare to what the prices were there in 2020 of course like i mean the share of the hydropower has been declining in the country uh, so the share of the hydropower it used to be uh, quite significant at one point of time but over the years it has fallen and as far as the potential that has been utilized in india so roughly it's only around 30 35% of the potential that has been utilized so there is a scope for adding hydro capacity in the country uh, and that is also very helpful for meeting the peak load but of course there are environmental concerns when you are implementing large hydropower plants so another very sore point in our whole system is the gas power plant so here we have roughly 25000 megawatt of gas based installed capacity but the plf is only 23 24% and mainly the plants run at this plant load factor mainly on the natural gas that is supplied under apm that is at the government determined prices so i mean they are almost unviable in case you were to import the gas because of the increasing prices and so initially when the plants were set up there were hopes that i mean we would be there would be increase in the domestic gas production which would be available at a cheaper rate but that has not happened so that is how the huge investment is blocked as far as the gas power plants is concerned so there are huge plans to add the installed capacity particularly in the renewable sector so we are planning to add roughly uh, the capacity in next 10 years what we have added in the last 70 years uh as far as the renewables are concerned there are major challenges uh one is the mainly this renewable power plants they are located in the far flung areas and there are the large investment that is required in the transmission system and whatever transmission system you also put i mean because of the intermittent nature of the renewables so that is not fully utilized so that is utilized only say maybe one third or maybe 40% of the time only so rest of the time i mean the full power flow is not there on this system uh again like because of the intermittent nature of the solar insulation and unpredictability of the wind speeds i mean solar power plants or the wind power plants are not alone fit for 24 into 7 power supply of course i mean we have all been talking about that in case we have good development of energy storage systems there is a possibility that uh, i mean we can use renewables for 24 into 7 power supply but still that's still quite far away uh, and because one is the uh, cost of the energy storage system is still very very high uh, and of course government has massive plans to encourage production and even the pli scheme for that uh, of course at a national level and international level india has made strong commitments to go net zero by the year 2070 uh, what it amounts to is 
having non-fossil fuel energy capacity of roughly 500 gigawatt by 2030, and also ensuring that 550% of our energy requirements are via renewable energy as compared to present share of 20%. Uh, so a lot has been done for promoting renewables in the country. Uh, as far as the FDI is concerned, the 100% FDI is allowed through the automatic route. Uh, uh, then we also provide them must-run status and also waiver from the interstate transmission charges, uh, which is, can be quite substantive for, say, thermal or other power plants. Uh, then the standard bidding guidelines have been provided by the government so that distribution licenses are able to procure power at competitive rates. Uh, we also have renewable purchase obligations, which is in the domain of the state regulators, whereby the DISCOMs are asked to have uh, a particular percentage of their total power purchase through the renewable sources. So we also have a framework of renewable energy certificates, uh, whereby uh, renewable generators who are directly injecting into the grid, they are issued renewable energy certificates, which can be traded on the power exchanges and also can be used to meet your uh, requirements. So in the deviation settlement mechanism also we have special dispensation for renewables. So in the power exchange recently new products have been introduced, green contracts, which can also be used by discoms to fulfill their uh, renewable obligation. Uh, so coming to transmission system, again, I mean, there has been good growth. I mean, at uh, say around 10 years back, there used to be a lot of transmission constraints in the system, but the things are much better now. And if you see, we are moving uh, towards higher voltages, uh, more and more additional capacity is being added, uh, say at 765 kV or 400 kV, because uh, uh, studies show that the power transmission over high voltages is not only uh, cheaper and the, also the transmission losses are lesser. So again, there has been growth in sub, uh, substation capacity in line with the growth in the transmission capacity. Uh, so just roughly like uh, there have been a growth of roughly 6.6%, 6.5% as for the length of the transmission line is concerned, whereas the substation capacity has grown by roughly 11 to 12%. Uh, again, transmission infrastructure building is an expensive affair. So government is keen that more and more power sector players uh, play a role in it. Uh, say over the last 10 years, there has been the, the share of the private sector has increased considerably from say 3.3% to 7.4%. Again, in the substation capacity also, the share of the uh, private sector has increased up to 4%. Uh, but again, the power grid, which is a state undertaking, continues to be the dominant player in the transmission sector. Again, I mean, there is a huge need for having good intra-regional transmission links, mainly because there are few regions like Eastern region and the Western region, we are surplus in power, whereas Southern region, which is not, uh, which is has a deficit power. So again, there has been in the last five, six years, there has been a lot of stress on having uh, building of the inter-regional transmission uh, links. So we have added 27,000 megawatts during the period from 17 to 20 uh, for transfer of power on inter-regional basis. Now, a uh, lot of these uh, transmission projects are now being bid through tariff-based competitive bidding where it is open for the anyone to bid, including the power grid. Uh, so as of August 20, nearly 50 transmission projects were awarded under tariff-based competitive bidding. Out of these, 28 have been commissioned 
uh, and out of these 50 projects, 35 projects were given to the private players and 15 went to the power grid. But of course, like whatever power grid won was also through the competitive bidding. Uh, but I mean, these all these projects have come mainly in the interstate transmission network and only handful of the projects have come in the, as interstate projects. So if you look at the trans challenges in the transmission, so like in the previous slides explained, there is good progress uh, in interstate transmission system over the last few years. Of course, the huge investments are still required to be made in the interstate transmission system. Uh, the timely execution of transmission projects is becoming a major challenge. Uh, one major reason is now, I mean, for building of the solar power plants, you require only about 18 months. Whereas to build the corresponding transmission system, so, I mean, it takes nearly 2.5 to three years. That's the ideal condition. But in case there are, say, ROW issues or land issues, so it can take much longer. So there is here a mismatch. So, I mean, how do we really cover up and how do we expedite implementing transmission projects is a challenge. Uh, like I mentioned, I mean, there are issues in acquiring land uh, and getting the right of way permission. And with the people and farmers, everyone becoming more and more aware everyone is demanding more and more for the land acquiring land is becoming expensive and uh, so this is again a major issue and so economic viability of transmission system for evacuating renewable energy is a challenge because i said uh, power flows over this system only for around 30 percent of the time uh, so <clears throat> so in fact i mean you are building transmission systems where only which are used only for 30 percent so Actually, if you uh, calculate per unit tra uh, transmission cost of evacuating the renewable, that's much, much higher than say from pithead coal-based plants. Uh, another major issue which we grapple in the CRC is the mismatch that is there between the uh, system, you know, what happens is once you are building a transmission system, which is bid through the tariff-based competitive bidding, there are also either generating plants or transmission system the upstream or downstreams. So in case this transmission system comes, but there are no downstream or upstream systems, uh, so the system is not put into use. On the other hand, the person who has built the systems, he wants the return on equity or the return on the investment. So how to tackle this has been a major challenge. I mean, one way is to that you put it, uh, I mean, socialize this and put it on the discoms or you load it uh, on the person which is defaulting or which has not brought the system in time. So this is a, one of the major challenges that how do you handle the issues of mismatch. Now, power distribution, I mean, this is the most talked about area because this is actually the cash register for the entire sector. So you may have very efficient generation system, very efficient transmission system, but in case you don't have efficient distribution system, uh, the whole sector can go for a six. So this has been a major pain point in India. Uh, of course, power is a concurrent subject and the responsibility lies with the state regulators also the, how they handle the distribution. Uh, I mean, despite uh, efforts that are being made by the government and all the stakeholders, the situation has not moved, moved much for the distribution entities. If we look at the aggregate losses, uh, I mean, uh, which are roughly around uh, 31,000 crores, cumulative losses have again like increased from 
uh, roughly around five lakh crores. Uh, again, receivables and all. All if you look at any of the parameters, say here the comparison is between financial year ending 2019 and 20. There has been a deterioration all, all around. Now this is the important slide where I would like to spend some time. Now, if you look at the sector as a whole, uh, uh, you'll find over here that the average cost of supply, these figures are for the year 2019-20, average cost of the supply per unit works out to around rupees 6.15 pesa. And the average revenue, I mean, this is after including the subsidy that is being given by the state governments, it comes to around 5.9. So, I mean, if even you look on the subsidy that is being built, so the gap is around 25 pesa per unit. And the whole subsidy that is built is not received. So there is another gap of five pesa. So this gap is 30 pesa. Now, again, the 30 pesa is because there are a lot of government of India scheme, particularly Uday scheme, and also state regulators also build up some of the uh, revenue streams into regulatory assets. That is the, actually, when you are, building up a revenue or regulatory asset. So you are not giving the tariff at that time, but you're saying that it will be given at the future date of time. So if you see, actually the gap is around 60 pesa per unit. And this gap varies from state to state. And in the states like Rajasthan, it is around 1.5, one more around uh, uh, one rupee 50 pesa and the Tamil Nadu it is more than two rupees. And the state duties like Andaman is around 20 rupees. Of course, Andaman is an outlier. Now here, if you see, I mean, you know, uh, roughly we have one lakh crore consumption of the units that are sold. Now here, I just want to show the sensitivity that has to the price. So even if the tariff is increased by 10 pesa, so it roughly adds 10,000 crores into the system. So, I mean, whether, I mean, uh, so it's a big, huge political issue and there is always reluctance to increase the price of tariff, even though, I mean, the costs are increasing, uh, inflation is increasing. Uh, and, but you can see the sensitivity that, I mean, if you want to make the whole sector viable, even 10 pesa increase in the tariff uh, puts around 10,000 crores into the system. Uh, so other challenges in the sector is the high ATNC losses. Again, they're roughly around 20%. Again, if you do the sensitivity analysis, I mean, 1% uh, reduction in the ATNC losses adds around 6,000 crore rupees into the system. Uh, of course, I mean, one, we all have to agree and that uh, like the present scenario, when we are having these shortages, I mean, these shortages are there for only short durations. Uh, but in case we don't want to have these shortages, the cost that is required to be incurred for building the reliability, that is very, very huge. Uh, so like in case, I mean, we, the discoms are not self-sufficient. I mean, there are no surpluses in the, with the distribution companies. I mean, we are not having cost-reflective tariffs. So it's very, very difficult to build the redundancy. So that's the major challenge that how do you draw the balance? Because always it is said that, I mean, uh, seeing the profile, demographic profile of the country, many of the people are not able to afford power. So you have to draw the balance between the two. So what I want to say is that there's a cost involved to the redundancy in case we want to have reliable power on 24 into 7 basis, there's a huge investments required and which will have a cost. Uh, so I have been involved in daily power sector, like in the daily, uh, the power distribution was 
privatized. Uh, three discoms were made. Uh, one was with the Tata's and two were with the erstwhile Reliance Anil Ambani Group. Uh, so, I mean, uh, in Delhi, the privatization has been a big success. Like through technology, Tata's in their areas, they were able to bring down ATNC losses from as high as 53% to 11% over a period of 12 years. I mean, they went, uh, we went for privatization the year 2002. Uh, then again, like uh, this is a, I mean, this is a government related issue. Of course, the government is keen on the privatization of the distribution. So that is how they floated the tenders for distributing private uh, uh, distribution for the union territories. Uh, so just to say, and overall also in Delhi, uh, for the, all the three discounts together, uh, the ATNC losses, which were as high as 50% in the year 2002-03, have been brought down to 8%. So the, there have been, uh, I mean, substantial reduce, almost margin daily is almost no load shedding at all. I mean, which were as high as 5 to 6% in 2002-2001 is less than 0.03%. Uh, so of course, like, uh, it's easier to say, but uh, I mean, in urban areas, privatization is still not very difficult, but uh, it's still a major challenge if you have to privatize distribution in the rural areas. Uh, so quickly, I mean, uh, of course, I, like I said, the distribution is the major important area. Uh, so here, the major way forward is that it is should be that state regulators should determine tariffs on cost reflective basis, I mean, without considering any cross subsidization. And thereafter, it should be free for the state government. I mean, to whichever category they want to subsidize, I mean, uh, since it's a concurrent subject, they should be free to subsidize. Of course, whatever subsidy is required, that should be paid upfront. So that sector as a whole remains viable. And I mean, we are able to generate surpluses for making investment into the sector so that redundancies can be created. So other ways are separation of agriculture and domestic feeder. So this has already been practiced by a number of the states. Uh, so advantage is that here, uh, agriculture, because the tariffs are low and agriculture uh, load can also be provided uh, for particular time slots. So you have separated the tariffs so that domestic supply can be given on 24 into seven basis. Uh, though another suggestion that is generally made is that in case on a particular feeder or a particular area, ATNC losses are high, uh, then the load shedding should be corresponding to that. So, so that, I mean, they know that they have to act together to reduce the ATNC losses to reduce the load shedding. Uh, so investing in technologies does help as we have seen in Delhi. So, I mean, uh, Tata's mainly through huge investment in the technology, they were able to reduce ATNC losses. Uh, so other issues are that, I mean, there's a lot of focus on demand side. Uh, demand side management is also very, very important. Uh, there is a talk about differential tariffs based on uh, intraday demand so that during the peak demand, the tariffs can be increased so that uh, customer can try to reduce their load during that period. So of course we require the proper metering infrastructure for that. Uh, again, like this is a, a major issue. I mean, in case we want to attract private sector investment into the sector, so we have to five, uh, fast track contractual and tariff related disputes. Uh, uh, and it mainly happens that in all the 
agreements, there is a clause of uh, change in law and force majeure. So, I mean, whenever there is such issues arise, uh, private players want to be compensated for that. Uh, so this is a, a mainly a regulatory issue, uh, but of course, I mean, uh, the private players also have to be true and accurate while they're filing their petitions. Uh, this is a very important area in energy storage system. Like I said earlier, in case we want to see that more and more renewables uh, come into place and they are able to meet, take low, more of the load share. So energy storage systems are very, very important because uh, then during uh, periods when the sun is out, the energy can be stored in these systems and then supplied when the sun or sun is not there or winds are not blowing. Uh, we have seen increasing role of power exchanges. Uh, I mean, uh, and we have to see that they come up with new products and there is more and more transparency. So this will also encourage merchant players to come. Uh, so at present, the share of the total power being sold to the exchanges is around six, 7%. Uh, and it has increased over the years. And we would see hopeful that uh, the power exchanges will play more important role in the years to come. Uh, again, we have a forum of regulators, which is under the chairmanship of uh, chairperson of uh, CRC. Uh, here, all the chairpersons of the state electricity regulators are members, and FOR works on developing model regulations and developing common understanding on policy requirement. So there are many areas where, uh, like uh, REC is one area, I mean, renewable energy certificates, which were conceived uh, in the FOR and which have been implemented successfully and also uh, division settlement mechanism. So, I mean, this is a very important forum which has been playing an active role. Uh, of course, like I said, there has to be increased uh, role of the private sector, whether it is transmission, distribution, or generation. And uh, we have seen a good role of private sector in generation. Of course, in transmission sector, it is increasing, but still very, very limited to around four to 5%. Of course, in the as a distribution concern, there are only a few examples. So capacity building is again an important area, both for all, all players, whether it is the state sector, central sector, or regulatory commissions. And of course, last issue of uh, achieving a political consensus that electricity is a commercial good uh, and it has a cost and one has to be very clear. So thank you very much. So I have run through my presentation. So I thought that, uh, I mean, uh, since the audience is, uh, well versed with the all the issues, so we'll have some good time to discuss. So over to you, Mr. Pan. Thank you. Well, thank you. I think Shigoel. Uh, I think you have covered exhaustively the issues across all the segments of the sector. So let me start because some of the participants have also uh, earlier also have posted that question. So the most vexed issue is about the um, uh, distribution. So how do we get the distribution? Uh, sort of uh, discoms such that the sector turns viable. I mean, there are multiple vexed issues. One you have highlighted is that there has to be a willingness to uh, charge tariff, which is cost reflective. And there has to be a willingness to pay subsidy in time by the state governments. There has to be a willingness to depoliticize. So this is one side. The other side is, of course, the, the capable capacity building at the discom level, such that their forecasts are um, uh, sort of reasonably okay in terms of their requirement going forward. The choices are more robust than whatever is 
convenient at any given point of time when they are entering into power purchase agreement, particularly the long-term power purchase agreement. So how do you see this? How do you, how do you get that discipline within inverted comma, within their discoms and between discoms regulators and the state government? So how do you see their trio actually uh, working and going planning out so that it actually can turn the sector around? I am a point of, like I said, the power sector distribution particularly uh, is in power as a subject as such is a concurrent list and in the distribution uh, tariffs are determined by the state regulators. So one of the foremost and important thing is that uh, how we take politics out of the distribution. So that is the key to the whole thing. Uh, so if we look at the daily example, the main reason for daily success and even now that the state government is able to give uh, so much subsidy and free power, is main reason is that on day-to-day -day basis, the sector is self-sustainable, uh, mainly for the reason that we have been able to reduce uh, ATNC losses considerably. I mean, like I said that from 50% to less than 10% uh, of course, the discount say that it's only in the range of around 6%. So to that extent, I think particularly in the urban areas, privatization can be of big help. Uh, then the issue of PPAs is also very important because the present mechanism has been that you enter into long-term PPAs, which are for 25 years, and you have to pay the fixed cost irrespective of you need or not. And if there are say alternative sources which come up where the generation cost is very less, but still you have to pay the fixed cost. So, I mean, with the emergence of power exchanges, we are seeing that more and more energy is being traded on the power exchanges. People are seeing that uh, power exchanges are working in a transparent manner. And once that kind of a confidence builds into the stakeholders, obviously we'll see more and more merchant power plants coming with new technologies. Uh, I mean, where the cost would be much lesser and then the states will not be entering into the long-term power purchase agreements while will be buying the power in the medium term or the short term to the power exchanges. And the, another important development is, like I said, in the transmission system, now we have very good uh, inter-transmission connections. So power surplus states can feed to the power deficit states. And that is also helpful in load management uh, also. So I think these are the few things that is happening in this area. And uh, of course, I mean, uh, like I said, in the whole sector, <coughs> capacity to pay of our people is also a point. And the regulator has to balance the interest of, say, the generators and the consumers. So that is a, I mean, very difficult balance. But having said that, like I've said, and you also said, uh, that the tariffs have to be determined on the cost-reflective basis. And then it is for the state government to take a call that if they want to make agriculture free, make it free. But I mean, whatever is the cost that you have to pay by way of the subsidy and that should be paid upfront. Of course, on the agriculture side, I think, uh, I mean, what's, this is something which I'm not asking the regulator, but what's your view in the sense that at one level, food security requires that we can't really avoid groundwater uh, utilization. On the other side, the groundwater or basin studies or climate studies tell us that we can't really deplete the groundwater 
so fast as we have been doing. And if we keep on continuing subsidizing heavily the um, electricity to the agriculture, it is in, I mean, it's almost impossible to stop the groundwater extraction at the rate at which it is happening. So how do you see this being played out? It's a complicated issue, but still, what's your take on it? Prathamana, uh, you are right. I mean, uh, we have seen this in Punjab, like Punjab, uh, I mean, there have been policies of supplying almost uh, power to agriculture sector, almost free or at a very, very cheap rate. And that is how we have seen that uh, uh, Punjab earlier used to be mainly wheat state, but now a lot of paddy is being grown over there because you can supply power by extracting the groundwater. And so to that extent, yes, I mean, uh, we need to have pragmatic policies to see to it that, uh, I mean, the groundwater is not exploited just because the power is being given free. Uh, of course, like, I mean, again, these are all very, very political issue and political economy uh, comes into play. Uh, but uh, I think I've, there is a realization now that, uh, I mean, in case such power is being given to the agriculture without any, say, limitation or uh, without having proper study done. So this can lead to this kind of a damage. Uh, so, I mean, th that is being looked into. So some states are uh, more active than the others. And then I said that agriculture feeders, having agriculture feeders is also separating. That is also helping because then you are supplying uh, power to agriculture for limited time, depending upon the requirement. But uh, of course, it's again, a very ticklish and difficult issue here. Yeah, so since you also mentioned about that, maybe once you rely more on the markets and once you have interstate transfer capability, which is strengthened, then the load management need not happen at the state level, then it can happen across uh, region, across maybe the country level. So there has been a move by CRC to come up with the general generalized network access, which will facilitate that. Um, uh, and since you mentioned Punjab, I mean, Punjab is a classic case where some of the plants were put up only because there was a peak load requirement for basically paddy growing. I mean, so you set up a plant which otherwise was not required. You could uh, actually take the power from the rest of the country, but because you had in limited uh, transfer capacity, so you set up the plant. So this is some optimal decision. So this could, these kind of things could have been avoided if had there been a uh, more interstate or in, uh, intra, within the region transfer capacity. So what is the what is the view of, let's say, the regulator or policymakers going forward? And what's your personal view? Should we be moving faster on GNA? What is the one uh, nation, one grid, uh, wherein one can inject or one can withdraw from anywhere in the country? Or should we still be planning at the regional or state level? No, I mean, like you said that uh, we have already come up with the draft GNA regulations and uh, we have already had a stakeholder consultation. We have also received comments from the stakeholders and we are firm of the firm view that, I mean, the GNA, I mean, whatever, I mean, instead of say, there should be no restriction on the type of contracts you want to draw power and your GNA should be based on your total demand. So we have seen that some states there say long-term agreements were for much lesser than what they were, uh, their actual demand was there. So I think GNA will take care of that. On the issue that, I mean, how do you handle it? So you see uh, the CRC had come out with, uh, I mean, real-time 
uh, market. I mean, a few months back, and that had really taken off. So, I mean, it gives an opportunity for discoms to adjust their load in the real time basis as the eight time block. So, nearly say uh, one and a half to two hours before your actual consumption. So, you can have minor adjustments to purchases in the power exchange. Uh, again, I mean, we have seen that uh, the in the day ahead market also there has been increasing role of the power exchanges. So, I mean, as the power exchanges develop and there are players in the market to supply power on a day ahead basis or real time basis, so people would be able to adjust their loads according to that. Uh, and again, I mean, as regards meeting their RPU obligation or the green power obligation, so we have also seen that exchanges are also introducing new products, green term at contract, green contracts, which they can transact green power. Yeah, one of the questions was about this recent move by the regulators to cap the uh, ceiling or to have the cap price on the market, not 12 rupees per unit. I mean, um, so uh, from a, as you know, from those who are trained from economic side, they would say you should never have such ceiling more so if it is transitory in character. In other words, the, this price is only for maybe a few slots in a day. Uh, why, why bother about it? Let the market tell as to what is the reality at that particular point of time. You see, so, uh, CRC had intervened. Firstly, uh, like this is the second time. Uh, firstly, like we had intervened in the year 2009. Right. Uh, so it is the second time that CRC has intervened by capping the prices at 12. So, I mean, when we did it, we did analysis. We found that most of the suppliers, I mean, they were supplying power. So at say, uh, eight, nine, six, seven, seven, eight rupees only. So it was mainly the buyers who were making bids for power uh, because of the shortages, say at more than 12 rupees. So, I mean, it was thought that, I mean, it is unnecessary leading to increase in the prices and uh, the shortage scenario is likely to go through for some more time. So the decision was taken to cap the prices. But again, when we capped the prices, we did it only for the day ahead and the real-time market. So what we have seen over the last, say, two, three weeks is that the market is shifting from day ahead to term ahead market, uh, where, I mean, in the exchanges, uh, you can do contracts 11 days in advance. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, I mean, that, that is what commission is looking into, that whether there's the need for capping in that area also. Uh, so that was done based on the market reality and considering that the prices was being unnecessarily being driven up. So now what is happening is that at rupees 12, uh, I mean, the supply bids are much lesser than the demand bids. And so whatever, whoever is bidding at say the maximum price of rupees 12, the supply that is there in the market that is being divided equally between the players in proportion okay. to what they have. Okay. So essentially what you're saying is that there was an irrational bidding by the buyers because, because they didn't have to really worry about it. I mean, it's a pass-through. So you bid, you make sure that all your consumers are happy. You know that you'll get passed through anyway if, and it doesn't matter. So it's an irrational part. No, I mean, it that. is, uh, I would not say that uh, it should always be passed through. Of course, the state regulators always can ask their discoms to say cap the price or you will not buy beyond this point. But uh, I mean, till the time state, uh, I mean, regulators don't intervene, then 
obviously whatever you purchase is a very Perfect. minuscule proportion of your total purchase so actually speaking your power purchase cost is not driven very very high yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, i mean of course it's a uh, more of a issue of optics because i mean right. it looks that uh, i mean the power is being purchased at rupees 20 and suppliers are making huge profit but if we really look at the in percentage terms, nothing, nothing. So what is being bought is a minuscule percentage right. of your total requirement but you also know that the state regulators have not bothered about it because they know why they are buying at 20 rupees also so i think historically we know that the state regulators have not bothered about that this is optics as you say anyway moving on to the next generation i think our participants have lots of questions and mostly coming out of uh, renewable the uh, some of them are of course talking about uh, how are we exploring nuclear option whereas the uh, thorium based generation capacity uh, gone so far why is that the foreign uh, participation in the nuclear energy has not happened despite 2008 deals and so on and so forth so there is one set of question nuclear Uh, would you like to answer that before i move on to renewable side yeah on the nuclear like i said that uh, at present uh, i mean the share is uh, quite less around 3% i mean the government has plans to increase it to 5% uh, you see in the nuclear there is a particular issue i mean i was in japan uh, in japan when this fukushima disaster happened and uh, that really put people off nuclear for some time and in fact countries like germany at that time decided that they would not uh, put up any uh, nuclear plant and also phase out whatever existing nuclear plants are there uh, of course the risk is quite low but uh, if something happens i mean it puts into setback of course i mean uh, my personal view is uh, that uh, considering the india's base load requirement and intermittent nature of the renewable and nuclear as such is not harmful with the kind of technologies that are available of course if something accident happens i mean there can be a, there are issues always issues but still it is a quite a safe thing and many countries have a large percentage of their power demands being met by the nuclear power plant uh, and it's a very good source for meeting the base load requirements i think going forward i mean we should see that more and more nuclear power plants coming in the india and at present the uh, plans of india government are to increase the share from 3% to 5% uh, over the next 4 5 years so the second related question is about the futuristic technologies which are still i think being talked about like uh, clean hydrogen fuel cell based uh, uh, technologies uh, we have been talking about the at least the uh, Uh, you know the government has been talking about it uh, what's your assessment how fast uh, it can come about and um, uh, whether it will be can be scaled up to fit in with the overall system system requirement or what time frame no you see i mean government is uh, very keen on all kind of clean energy sources and uh, india has made a very very strong commitment at international level uh to be net zero by 2070 that's a very very huge commitment and in case that has to be met uh so all kind of developments in the renewable sector has to take place so as far as the hydrogen sector is concerned so government has launched hydrogen mission and also i think pli scheme in this area uh so and there are special groups working on this uh and it's just a i i personally feel a matter of time before we really make uh, 
breakthrough and it becomes cost effective. Yeah, so I think nuclear and hydrogen both, I guess, you require also some time frame to move the system to have them plug in in a big way. The more interim problem is energy security, stroke, climate change, stroke, uh, integration problem of RE. We can build up the RE, particularly the intermittent sources such as solar. We can scale up there. But then how do you, um, how do you mix it with the uh, more dirty technologies, which have to be used for uh, managing the load throughout the day? And um, while CRC, I understand, has been asking uh, the generators to increase their ramp, uh, ramp rates and ramp down rates. Uh, but there is a cost to it, and whether the uh, whether the afford on affordability count, whether you think that uh, given the cheap solar power, is it possible to sort of accommodate that aggressively? Uh, and of course, by by still operating. Uh, yeah. Again, my personal view is uh, that uh, energy energy storage scheme systems. I mean, we really have to have a breakthrough uh, in those technologies. I mean, like we saw that the solar panel prices fell down drastically and solar power become, became cheap. Uh, of course, we have seen in the lithium ion cells and others, I mean, the prices have come down drastically, but still they are not at a scale that they can be commercially exploited. Uh, and of course, we would require huge investments in the energy storage systems uh, so that uh, when we have surplus energy that can be stored and then uh, during the night and other periods, uh, they can be we can supply energy through those energy storage devices. So, so uh, I think uh, I mean we are all now aware of it. Uh, that I mean that interplay is there, like you mentioned, of the uh, different sectors. Uh, and but I mean even with the kind of push that we are giving to the renewable sector, some investments would be required to maintain our base load. Uh, so saying that I mean we would not require any addition to thermal capacities or uh, even say hydro capacities to manage a base load, that would be wrong. I mean, even though we can give a massive push to renewables, but uh, some addition will have to be made to the base load, both in uh, thermal, nuclear, and to extent hydro like is used both for peak load and uh, base load, but particularly uh, coal and thermal, uh, coal and sorry, nuclear can yeah. be very useful maintaining the base. Okay, I am, this is not a question which has been asked by anyone, but I'll ask that question. So, uh, like we have created gas capacity in the hope that we will get the gas from KG Basin. We know that the gas is not going to come by. So, how, why, why, what is our stance on dealing with this stranded asset? We know that the gas, unless we wait for the gas prices somehow to come down or we discover a gas out of blue, why are we sitting with those assets and not doing something about it? <laughs> no, uh, I mean, like one is that one gas-based plants are very good for meeting peak load demand. Yes. I mean, they can be ramped up very easily. So that is one their utility. And like I said, that the load uh, utilization or the PLF is only around 21-22%. Uh, I mean, you are right. I mean, many of the plants have actually closed down or they are non-functional. Yes. Uh, but some plants... I mean, which are part of, say, uh, say NTPC or say major players, which can be in a way sort of cross subsidized. I mean, they can, they are still existing, uh, but uh, putting up a new plant, gas-based plant is of course 
unviable or feasible, but whatever existing capacity they there, somehow we are managing them. Uh, and uh, uh, but again, like gas behave prices behave very erratically. I mean, sometimes they can really go down also, and maybe at that time these plants can be used. But you are right. I mean, their capacity utilization is very very low, and in case they remain very unviable for a long time, of course, many of them could be closed down over a period of time. Yeah. Yeah, and they can be free their assets from environmentally sort of, uh, uh, I mean, land is blocked, manpower is deployed to keep them sort of, main. So, so some of them plants might be which are connected to the APM gas pipeline, let's say, that on the main trunk pipeline, they can be retained. But the KG Basin ones, I don't see any. No, but you see, more, uh, Mr. Pandey, the issue is in most of the plants, like in Delhi, we build this Bhavana gas plant, yes. which is a huge plant. Uh, I mean, with the assumption that, uh, at that time, there were a lot of plans that uh, we will be getting natural gas or India, a lot of gas will be produced in India. So that is how these gas-based plants come. Yes. And uh, for Delhi, with the total ban on having, say, coal-based plants coal -based. in and around Delhi, uh, so gas-based plant was the need of the hour. But right. again, yes. I mean, uh, uh, because of the affordability factor, it is being used at only 30-35% capacity. Uh, uh, because, I mean, uh, running them on imported gas is just not viable. I mean, no, no discom is willing to buy at that price. So that's the situation here, reality. Uh, so thank you very much, sir, for joining in for the session. And uh, Professor Pandey, I mean, as usual, I've been in your session uh, when you used to teach us IDF. And uh, it's always a pleasure to be in your session, sir. In fact, you could kind of really uh, assimilate the kind of questions and ask it in a manner that uh, really bring out the essence of the discussion very well. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you very much, sir. I think that's all from my end. Thank you, Praveen, and thank you, sir. Uh, thank you, Professor Pandey. I mean, it's been very, very nice, nice interacting with all of you, and it was my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Praveen. Thank you. Thank you, sir.